ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, are we unintentionally excluding certain groups of people from clinical trials for cancer therapies? Important question. Plus, how the measurement of blood pressure at home or in your doctor's surgery may be inaccurate and why. Plus, a short intervention that works for post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, which is sadly topical this week. Yes, with the uh, Hamas intrusion and attack into Israel and all these civilians killed and babies and so on, and with the existing air war against Gaza and presumably the ground offensive that's about mm-hmm. to start, at least at the time that we're talking, there's a brewing epidemic of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, can we start with a definition of what post-traumatic stress disorder actually is? Well, It's an extreme form of anxiety, in a sense, caused by, they think, the abnormal laying down of memories, bad memories. So it's either you're experiencing a life-threatening event, so you're an Israeli soldier being attacked and you survive that, that's a traumatic life-threatening event. You know, as many Israeli soldiers are doing now, have been doing over the last week, clearing bodies out from kibbutzim, ghastly job. And then on the Gazan side, bombings, seeing people very badly injured, just missing out and being killed yourself. And those are the situations that cause that childhood trauma, car accident, if you're a first responder, seeing something appalling um, that you've had to go and car accident or what have you. And then the symptoms are flashbacks, uh, reliving the situation, nightmares, avoidance of people in situations which you fear might trigger those bad feelings. You're easily roused to anger. You have negative thoughts, you feel guilty, your mood is flat, a lot of anxiety, hypervigilant, you see danger where it's probably not there, very difficult to live with, very disabling. It's such a complex condition and one of the things, one of the interesting complexities about it is that it doesn't always happen straight away after the traumatic event. No, it happens, there's often a delay. And one of the mistakes that's made by authorities is sending in the debriefers uh, immediately after a traumatic event to get people to talk it through. As you'll discover, talking it through is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's when you've actually got PTSD. Because of 100 people seeing the same traumatic event, 10 to 15%, maybe as high as 20% at times, of people will develop PTSD. It's not the majority of people. But if you get people to talk it over in the first 24 hours or so, the theory is that you lay down, it helps to lay down those abnormal memories, and you may increase the risk of PTSD. And why it happens with a delay, nobody really knows. But if you're, in a, if you're a first responder or you're in a, the army, uh, you've got, you're surrounded by buddies and an infrastructure which is supportive. But when you leave that organisation, you, you essentially are, are abandoned. In a, you feel abandoned and you don't have those boundaries set by the organisation. It's much harder in some ways for people in a civilian context with PTSD because you don't have that wraparound support. And that's, of course, what the Palestinians in Gaza and indeed people in Israel who survived these shootings, they don't necessarily have that wraparound, which the military would too. And so if first responders notoriously get PTSD up to two years after they've left the service. 
So you mentioned some of the things that don't work for treatment, this sort of immediate going in and talking things out. What do we know about what does work? Well, in a delayed sense, um, and you're about to hear this in the, the interview I've just done on this, this new research, in um, well, first of all, people are trying psychedelics, and there is a little bit of evidence that um, MDMA might help the process here. But psychotherapy does work, and if you treat, remember I said it's an extreme anxiety disorder, almost like mm. a phobia. Um, the treatment is a bit like desensitization. If you've got a spider phobia or so on, it's exposure to the story and the emotions that the story generate. But the, as you'll hear, the treatment when you do this exposure psychotherapy is long, you're required to do homework, and a lot of people drop out, which is why they've developed this technique of actually writing down the story and got some remarkable results. Here's Professor Denise Sloan, who's a professor of psychiatry at Boston University and senior clinician investigator at the US National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. Psychotherapy is the strongest evidence base. So it's something called trauma-focused treatment. So the treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy that's really focused on confronting the trauma memory, the thoughts and feelings people have around the memory. And trying to get a reality base to the thinking. What we think, uh, the reason that people develop post-traumatic stress disorder, I should say that most people at least one time in their life will have at least one of these catastrophic life events but most people are resilient in the face of that, so they don't go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. It's really about maybe 10% of the population will develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So what's different about the people that develop it versus those that don't is that for those who develop post-traumatic stress disorder, the way that they cope with having a traumatic event is that they try to avoid thinking about the trauma memory. And that strategy works for a lot of situations in people's lives but it doesn't work for trauma memories because you can't just simply forget that this thing happened. And the more that they avoid it, the more intrusive memories they have and the more they have to avoid people, places, situations because it's reminding them of it. So it's not actually the event itself. It's the way that they're coping with it. So that's why the treatment that works best is to have them confront their memory. And in something called prolonged exposure, what they do is they confront the memory by saying it out loud to a therapist repeatedly in a session. And they also have assignments between sessions where they confront people, places, situations they had been avoiding because it reminded them of the trauma event. And that's in essence what they do in trauma-focused treatment. So it's almost like desensitization when you've got a phobia. That's correct. That's exactly what it is. So why did you feel the need to develop a new form of therapy called written exposure therapy. These treatments work really well, but a lot of people drop out prematurely. Just within the first few sessions, they'll drop out because most of the treatments, the trauma-focused treatments that we have, they're at least 12 sessions. Prolonged exposure is an hour and a half each session, and it's anywhere between 8 to 15 sessions. Usually people do something more like 12 sessions. And cognitive processing therapy is the other very commonly administered treatment, and that's 12 sessions, an hour each session. And in addition, people have to do assignments in between the sessions. So for many people, they have busy lives, and it's just a lot for them to go to these sessions. And sometimes people can't even afford to go to that many sessions. They just don't have the financial resources or the time to do it. So we have these great treatments, but a lot of people aren't 
accessing the treatment. They just can't get access to it to begin with. And even when they do, at least a third of the people drop out very early on in the treatment. So there's a real need to identify, like, how can we treat this in a way that's more efficient? That was what led me to pursue this work. What's the process of written exposure? They write it down. Yeah, we have guided instructions for how they're to write about it. So it's five sessions. It's about an hour or 45 minutes to an hour each session. And each of the sessions, we have them write about the trauma memory. We pick one specific memory if they have something where it was domestic violence or maybe child sexual abuse where it was multiple events. We still ask them to focus on one event and the event that kind of stands out to them as the most upsetting, the most distressing And we have them write about the details of what happened, you know, starting at the beginning, as well as what they were feeling and thinking at the time of the event. And then they repeatedly write about it through the five sessions. And this writing instructions evolve so that by the end, they're also writing about how the event impacted them and the way that they lived their life and how they relate to other people. And basically, by doing that, we don't have between-session assignments, but we do ask people that if they find themselves having thoughts or images of the trauma memory between the weeks, that they try to allow themselves to have whatever those thoughts or feelings or images might be. So we are trying to reemphasize, don't avoid, try to confront. And we find, I think somewhat surprisingly, that just doing that is effective, and it's just as effective as doing these more time-intensive treatments that have between-session assignments as well. What does the therapist do during these sessions? Well, the therapist is really a guide and a coach. Even though the person's writing about it, the therapist is there with them in the room, kind of monitoring them, seeing you know how engaged they are, making sure that they're sticking with it. And then the client at the end of the session, the therapist will check in with the person of like, how did it go for you? What was that like for you to write about this? So they talk about it. And the client then gives their writing a narrative to the therapist so the therapist can read it before the next session and then give the client feedback about, you did a really great job with the the details, but you didn't really write about the emotions. You know, try to really integrate that today. That's going to be important. So they're really a coach and helping to guide them through the whole process. So you found in this randomized trial, we were comparing the more traditional treatment to the written exposure treatment that they were roughly the same. But what does that actually mean? So if 100 people go through this treatment, how many are significantly helped? There's different ways of looking at this. I mean, on average, people got better in both conditions. However, much fewer people dropped out of the short treatment than did the prolonged exposure. That's not totally surprising because there's fewer sessions. But even if you only looked at like the first five sessions of prolonged exposure, the difference was still significant. So a lot fewer people, it was 13% compared to 39% dropping out. They benefit to the same extent, but a higher proportion do. What do we know about people who don't get better with therapy? Is there something different about them? That is the million-dollar question. So we, we really don't know why do some people get better and some don't. And it is something that I think the field has to start to focus on more. Like, why is it that some people do get better and and some really struggle with it. Honestly, you know, sometimes people are ready to do this treatment. They feel like, I really want to get my life back. 
And other times people are just really afraid. Uh, They're afraid to do it because, you know, they're afraid of what's going to happen if they let themselves think about this thing that they've been trying to shut down and avoid for all this time. And maybe, you know, the emotions that they have will feel so overwhelming. A lot of times people have fears, like I'm going to start to cry and I won't be able to stop, which is understandable. It feels overwhelming when you do this. I mean, these treatments are not easy. But they have to be willing to really engage in it and be willing to do it. And if they are, generally people do get better. Where does this sit with drug-assisted therapy? So, for example, there was a group, I think, in Montreal who started, and other people have done it, where you elicit the memory and then you give people a beta blocker, which there's evidence that then that blocks the memory from reasserting itself. And then there's... MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, which veterans have been trying themselves, and there's a little bit of clinical trial evidence. Where do we sit with drug-assisted therapy? Those trials are interesting. I think they're still pretty preliminary because they're not just doing the medication. They're also doing something else. They're doing sessions as well. I mean, I think if it works, it works, and it doesn't really matter what you're doing. The evidence does seem promising, but I do think it's very time intensive. So MDMA and ketamine, this is another drug that people have tried. They're combining that with some sort of psychotherapy. And because of the type of medication that it is, they usually in MDMA, the protocol is that you have two therapists with the person. They do three eight-hour sessions with the medication, and then they do these individual psychotherapy sessions that are about an hour, and there's several, um, like eight of them. That's pretty time-intensive. And expensive. And expensive. And I think, you know, it's great to have other options, but we get back to this problem of it's too time-intensive, and we already have things that do work, um, but it's the time intensity that's really the barrier for most people. Denise Sloan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Dr. Lee Sloan is Professor of Psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine, and she's also a senior clinician investigator at the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in the United States. And this is The Health Report. Well, Tegan, what could be more basic when you go to see the doctor or in hospital than having your blood pressure checked? Yeah, I know it's like a standard thing to do, but every time I see that cuff coming towards me, it's like I can feel my blood pressure rising. <laughs> That's right. I have to calm myself down. White, white, white coat hypertension, they call it. That's um, it. Well, it's actually a life-saving test since high blood pressure is next to smoking, probably the most toxic risk factor for heart attacks, strokes and dementia. So it's serious if the doctor or nurse gets it wrong. In the old days, blood pressure measurement was a manual process with a doctor or nurse using a stethoscope to listen for the pulse in the arm as they released the pressure on the cuff. Nowadays, it's an automatic machine that does all the work. But according to a recent trial, a significant and possibly unexpected source of error is the size of the cuff relative to the thinness or thickness of your upper arm. The lead researcher was Associate Professor Tammy Brady of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. Oh, thank you for having me. What did we know about the size of the cuff before you did your research? Many people in 
clinical care recognize that cuff size is important, but most of the studies about cuff size were done using what we call manual auscultation or when, you know, we think of old school blood pressure measurement with the person wearing a stethoscope and listening to the beats of the heart while the cuff is inflated. And so we knew going in that cuff size mattered when you measured blood pressure in that manner. But what we didn't know was how important cuff size was when you measured blood pressure with an automated blood pressure device, which is pretty ubiquitous these days and and is actually what most of the clinical practice guidelines recommend. So that was what was the big question for us. So we might be lulled into a false sense of security with the automated machine because we think it's more accurate and don't need to worry about cuff size quite so much. I think a lot of people assume that blood pressure devices, the automatic ones, you know, just sort of magically take accurate blood pressures and they don't appreciate how important the user skill is. So it's very important for people to prepare for the measurement properly, to position the patient properly and or position yourself if you're the patient and they don't realize how important cuff size is. Yeah. So the blood pressure device won't give a magical accurate number unless a lot of those things are happening. Before we get to the cuff size, now you've mentioned it, how should you be sitting? What, what should be the protocol for blood pressure measurement before you even put the cuff on the arm? This is one of my big passions is making sure that people recognize the right way to do this. I think especially since many of us measure blood pressure at home and may not recognize the step. So the big thing I tell people, so make sure that your bladder is empty. So before you take a measurement, make sure you empty your bladder. Ideally, Why? ideally you should not pressure? have any caffeine or any tobacco products for 30 minutes before. And you really want to make sure that you are resting and in a comfortable place. Your back should be supported. Your feet should be on the floor, legs on cross, and your arm needs to be supported next to you so that that cuff is essentially at mid-heart level. And these are really important. Many people will just get up out of bed and sit at the end of their bed and measure their blood pressure in the beginning of the day, but that may not give the best blood pressure measurement. And the significance of the bladder being empty, does the bladder being full increase your blood pressure? So having a full bladder can raise your blood pressure by 10 millimeters of mercury or more. That's a lot. Okay, so now let's get to the cuff size. What you've done is a randomized trial in people middle age, some of whom had high blood pressure, but not all. And you looked at the thickness of their arm, essentially, and then looked at the appropriateness of the blood pressure cuff. So you compared regular cuff size to a measured cuff where you took the arm circumference and tailored the cuff to the person. What differences did you find? We were looking at the typical clinical scenario where you have one cuff size attached to a blood pressure device in a clinical setting. You go in to see your doctor, you sit in the triage area, you have your blood pressure measured, and then you go into the clinic room. And so in that scenario, we wanted to compare what the difference in blood pressure was using a regular adult cuff to the cuff size that was appropriately sized for your arm. And in that comparison, we found pretty striking differences when you compare what measurement you obtained in an individual who needed a large adult cuff, the regular adult cuff overestimated blood pressure by five millimeters of mercury. But even more striking was that if you were a person who requires an extra large cuff, using a regular cuff would overestimate your blood pressure by almost 20 millimeters of mercury. And that could change your diagnosis from normal blood pressure, which could be the truth, to stage two hypertension. Pretty striking overestimations with undercuffing. And if you had a small arm and you had a regular cuff, it underestimated your blood pressure. So you could have high blood pressure and it could be missed. Yes, you could be underdiagnosed for sure. So what's the implication of this? Because 
you know, when I was a medical student, we were taught that the cuff needed to fill two-thirds of the arm, but it's the longitudinal measurement of the arm. What you're focusing on is the circumference of the arm in the midpoint. So what's the average general practitioner or GP nurse or hospital nurse to do here? One of the things I've learned as I've talked to more people about our study is those typical dimensions, cuff dimensions that we were taught, really only apply to cuffs used for manual auscultation. Again, the typical doctor listening with a stethoscope type of blood pressure. When you're using an automated device, those dimensions don't necessarily apply. You do, however, need to make sure the cuff is the right size. So I do advocate for measuring the midarm circumference with the measuring tape. It takes 10 seconds tops. And then looking at the markings on the cuff that comes with the device to make sure you are choosing the correct cuff. So that I think is one of the big takeaways. And I think making sure that the staff who are in charge of blood pressure measurement are aware of this because I think many physicians and nurses and general practitioners know, but some of the medical assistants may not appreciate how important this individualized cuff size selection is for accurate measurement. So what's a patient supposed to do if they see somebody coming towards you with a regular cuff? Excuse me a minute, I just heard on the radio last night, you need to be measuring my arms circumference. Is that what they should be saying? You know, I take care of many children, adolescents and young adults for high blood pressure, and I will empower them to tell any provider what cuff size they need. Because many children will come to me requiring an extra large cuff, and when I bring that cuff out, they tell me they've never seen one that size used on them. And so I will empower them to tell their provider, I need the extra large cuff. And I make sure that they know their arm circumference size so that if they're opting to do home blood pressure measurement, they can ask the pharmacist or someone at the store to help them find a cuff that comes with the correct size. And we will have a link on the Health Report website to your paper, which they can print off and take to the doctor. Tammy, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Associate Professor Tammy Brady is a paediatric nephrologist and vice chair for clinical research in the Department of Paediatrics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. For people with cancer, being offered a place in a clinical trial can provide hope of a better outcome, as well as contributing to knowledge that could go on and save other lives. But when you look at who's actually enrolled in clinical trials, a pattern emerges. Participants are far less likely to be from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds than the general population. So what's behind this divide and what can we do to correct the imbalance? A recent research project has aimed to answer these questions and its lead author is Dr Abby Powell, who joins me now. Hi, Abby. Hi, Tegan. Uh, What do we miss when we exclude certain groups of people from clinical trials, whether it's intentional or not? It's a huge problem, Tegan. The first problem is equity of access. As a medical oncologist, I know that cancer clinical trials offer innovative therapies from tomorrow or the next year, and so these groups are missing out. And the second problem is a generalizability of these results. So when we don't study the population as it is, we don't understand the impact of these new treatments on these populations. So the science itself is not uh, easily applicable to all patients. Right. So there's sort of a generalizability kind of aspect to it. What about the p- potential participants themselves? What are they missing out on? It's That's the one of the biggest problems that I see the inequity of in my clinic. So in medical oncology, we've had such uh, a revolution in therapy over the last 10 years from immunotherapy and targeted therapy. So we're seeing much better rates of survival and quality of life in many tumours but that's only possible in cancer clinical trials. So when a patient today doesn't get onto a cancer clinical trial, they just miss out on that therapy. And that's what we, the studies consistently show is that patients from particular communities and people who can't speak English well 
are missing out on these opportunities in a systematic way. And that finding has been replicated across the globe many times over the last three decades. So I don't think, well, I hope that no one's sort of intentionally hoarding these clinical trial spots away from people from these backgrounds. It's sort of, like you say, systemic. Can you talk me through what some of the drivers are for this imbalance? That's uh, that's the key of the question is it's a structural kind of discrimination. There's imbalances at every level. So at the first level, the patient level, we know that certain communities have different attitudes towards participation in research, the attitude towards health professionals and attitude towards institutions. And often there is mistrust and misunderstanding and health literacy is a known risk factor. So we know that uh, when it comes to a cancer clinical trial, these groups are going to think twice or have some more questions than other, pay- other groups. The second st- uh, step is the site. So when I do a clinical trial at my hospital, we often don't have enough time to discuss clinical trials with patients. We often don't have bilingual staff. We may not have easy access to interpreters. And we also don't always have multilingual resources. So at the site level, these patients actually face challenges understanding trials. And finally, at the sponsor level, and sponsor is a bit of technical jargon for the actual company which runs the clinical trial. So in cancer, it might be a pharmaceutical company who designs the research. Often the research can sometimes exclude groups. So in cancer clinical trials, often a patient reported outcome or a questionnaire is part of the clinical trial protocol, and it hasn't been translated in English. And in the research study, they might say, we won't include people who don't speak English. So there are barriers at every level from patient, site and sponsor that can contribute to the inequity we see over and over again. So these are kind of barriers that have been identified, not just in Australia, like primarily overseas. Your study talked to people working in oncology in Australia. When you were asking them, what did they sort of say the main issues were? So we did the first study in Australia of the cancer clinical and research professional workforce. We had 91 people respond. We had about 10% of medical oncologists in Australia, so a really good snapshot in the first data. And what we found is we replicated a lot of the literature from overseas. We showed that it is the lack of interpreter time, the lack of time in clinic, the too hard basket, and also these patient factors as well. We replicated that because Australia's multicultural community is a bit different. We also found that most clinical trials, you know, so 74% did not collect routine data on who is coming on to their trials. If you don't measure it, you can't manage it. So we don't even know who is coming onto the cancer clinical trials. So this is a, an easy area for improvement where we can actually work out our performance on a year-to-year basis so we can track it. So can you give me an example of, you know, you're talking about these differences between ethnic groups and how different drugs might perform in them. Has there been an example or more than one of a therapy which does work in a certain way in one group and not in another? Yes. So, for example, in America and in the field of prostate cancer, we know that the drug abiraterone works differently in African-American populations compared to Caucasian populations, and that finding's been replicated. And the issue was that the pivotal clinical trials which um, were used to register abiraterone did not include high rates of African-American populations. Following on from this, the Food and Drug Administration Authority, which is the gatekeeper to drug approval globally, uh, they have actually now mandated certain rates of Black and Hispanic recruitment in cancer clinical trials to ameliorate this problem. So this is the FDA, this is a strong regulatory lever they've used to ensure that um, trials are inclusive. 
the Australian branches of these pharmaceutical companies are also very interested in improving diversity in clinical trials. And so that's why it's been very timely to do this work where we better understand the barriers and solutions in an Australian context, which is a bit different to the American context. Australia is a multicultural migrant community with a panoply of smaller communities. So it's definitely a bit more, it has its own set of challenges in addressing this inequity in Australian contexts. So really briefly, what are the sort of top line solutions that you're recommending here? So we asked uh, uh, respondents what the preferred solution would be. And the first, the two that came out on top were trial navigators to support people from other backgrounds to participate and also multilingual resources to help patients who can't speak English to, to understand. And this, the idea of navigators has been caught a lot of traction in the literature. So essentially, these patients need support to demystify, to support, to reassure about research and having that time and person there to make it the institution of clinical trials more accessible, mm. we believe is the path forward. And in Southwestern Sydney, we are looking into this. Abby, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the time, Tegan. Pleased to be here. Dr. Abby Powell is a medical oncologist at Bankstown and Liverpool Hospitals and a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. Really important issue. And that's the health report for this week. We'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.